And if you would please turn in your Bible to the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's found on page 1179 of the Pew Bible. If you'd like to follow along there, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Today will be our last sermon in 1 Timothy for at least a month or so. Pastor Trefskar will be preaching next Sunday morning and then we'll enter into, believe it or not, we'll enter into our Christmas series of sermons. This year we've decided to preach a series of sermons titled uh, Ministers of the Covenant. Of course, this is a reference to the angels who were so active in the events of Christmas. And so that's the sort of approach we'll be taking in the four Sundays of December. We'll be looking at the angelic role in the Christmas story and at how their work, the work of the angels at Christmas, helps us to see that heaven really did come down that first Christmas. May their presence and ministry at this first advent draw our thoughts to Christ's second advent when he will appear this time with all his holy angels. At that last day, on that last day, heaven won't just touch down. It will unite with the earth. And what we have known our whole lives, this distance, this veil between heaven and earth, that veil will be torn from top to bottom and we shall ever be with the Lord. But before we leap into the Advent season, let me bring you back uh, one more week to the great city of Ephesus capital of Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey. Ephesus was a great city and home to one of the greatest, if not the greatest, wonder of the ancient world, the many-columned temple to Diana or Artemis. Paul had established a thriving church in that city, a thriving church in the shadow of this monument of hell. But the powers of darkness were not about to let this happen without a fight. So the book of Acts tells us that there was a great riot in Ephesus, a citywide riot against this new church. In the end, God preserved the church, but Paul could no longer safely stay in the city. However, as Paul had done everywhere else, he had appointed elders to watch over this new church in his absence. Sometime later, because the city was too dangerous for him to enter, and because he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, he arranged to meet these elders in the nearby port town of Miletus. At that meeting, recorded for us in Acts 20, Paul warned the Ephesian elders that from their own number, some would fall away and draw others away with them. And yet, he urged them to continue to lead the flock, quote, over which the Spirit has made you overseers or bishops, end quote. Timothy has been sent now to that city to confront the false elders and to strengthen the faithful elders who are mentioned in our text today. Chapter 1 of this letter began with Paul commanding Timothy to use Paul's apostolic authority to silence the false teachers. Chapter 2 of the letter urges Timothy to correct, to redirect the worship of the church. It speaks about how we're to pray when we're in worship and what men and women are to do and be doing in the public worship of God. 
Chapter 3 gave us the qualifications for elders and deacons. And chapter 4 described for us the work of ministry, the work of the minister, the work of Timothy. Beginning now in chapter 5, Paul turns to different groups in the church. Last week, we noted his rules for widows, true widows, This was a significant demographic in the early church, and Paul was concerned for their care. There also seems to be some indication in the pastoral epistles that young widows especially were being led astray by the false elders. So this was an important situation to correct. Today, we begin a series of instructions about the elders of the church. They were, after all, the other big problem in this church. So today we'll be focusing on them. Today, specifically for sake of time, we'll look at verses 17 and 18, but I want to read for us verses 17 through 25 to give us the whole context. So if you would, please stand as is our custom. And we'll begin the reading at verse 17 of chapter 5, 1 Timothy. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God... And of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in a laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but also use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, it is by your word that you comfort, encourage, and direct us. We are utterly dependent upon it. There's not one place on this globe where people are drawing near to you in any other way than by the reading, studying, and receiving of your most holy word. So we present ourselves now to you, everyone, to receive the teaching of your word and not to hear only, but to obey. Send forth your spirit to guide us and direct us in all these things and open every heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Knowing that we had baptisms this morning and the welcoming of new members, I want to focus today on just the first two verses of this section on the eldership. Let me read just those two verses to you one more time. This is 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well... Be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And again, 
the laborer deserves his wages. As you know, in this particular church, unfortunately, the main problem was the elders. Paul had predicted this in Acts 20, and this letter began with Paul commanding Timothy to silence these false elders. And please notice, and don't miss this, Paul will give in a moment, in a few verses, instructions for disciplining bad elders in verses 19 through 21. We will get there soon. So as I, I preach today about honoring elders, please don't think that we're going to skip over the need for accountability. That being said, it's important not simply to watch elders with suspicion, but also to encourage them, honor them, and submit to them in the Lord. In fact, this is the other side of the coin, isn't it? If we're going to hold elders and pastors to high standards, then we must follow up by acknowledging them. We fight the bad elders by doing both these things, by holding the bad ones accountable and by also loving and submitting to the good ones. And that is what Paul is teaching in this section of scripture. There were good elders in the Ephesian church. So Paul wants to make sure that the good elders are being honored even as Timothy is rooting out the bad ones. Just because some of the elders are greedy and immoral doesn't mean that Timothy is free to disrespect the faithful elders. In fact, Timothy is to ensure that double honor is given to some of these men. For our study this morning then, notice with me two things. First, these verses reinforce the general scriptural practice of elder rule in the church. These verses reinforce the general scriptural practice of churches being governed by a multitude, a pluretha, a few, a number of elders, more than one. Second, these verses also reinforce the scriptural practice of gospel ministry, paid full-time gospel ministry in the church. So let's look at these two things together. So first of all, these verses reinforce the Bible's overall teaching on elder rule. The book of Acts, if you've read through that, and Paul's earlier letters, this is one of his last ones, but his earlier letter, letters have already made the point again and again that local churches are to be governed by a body of elders. You really can't read the book of Acts and not see this. Everywhere Paul goes, churches are founded and elders, plural, are appointed. You can even see this in little moments in Paul's letters. For just one example, the letter to Philippians begins with Paul greeting all the saints in Philippi, and then he adds this, along with the overseers and deacons, or in English, along with the bishops and deacons. Now, in this particular church, the church in Ephesus, Paul appointed elders and charged them in Acts 20 to shepherd the church and oversee it. But at that same meeting, he warned them that some would fall away and try to lead others astray. Now, this would be the perfect time for Paul, if he wanted to, to rethink elder rule, to rethink his strategy. Who could blame him? But notice instead that the pastoral epistles, and especially this passage, reinforce 
not to run away from, but reinforce the Bible's teaching on elder rule. Instead of running away from his past actions, his ordinations, Paul is reinforcing the basic teaching of the Old Testament and New Testament that elders are men from the congregation who've been elected and ordained to rule well as stewards in God's church. And this is the picture we get everywhere in Scripture, everywhere. Men who are appropriately elected and ordained who then exercise oversight and faithful stewardship in God's house. Let's briefly review those elements I just gave you. First of all, elders must be men. This is not the only qualification, as if just being a man you're qualified, but it is a qualification. We've seen in this very letter that Paul excluded women from this office And the church has universally held that position for over 2,000 years, while at the same time relying upon women, our sisters in Christ, in many other ways. This does not mean that women don't matter or that they're inferior in some way to men. This doesn't mean, uh, as we've seen before, that they are unfit to lead in certain situations. By the way, I spent several weeks on this and did this very carefully. As you'll remember, we went through all those verses together. So if you're struggling with this, I would love to talk to you about that. And I would also encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons once again. In short, this is not an issue of natural ability. This is not something about women. There isn't something about women that makes them unfit. Women receive the Holy Spirit And in the early church, women prophesied and they spoke in tongues. In other words, there were women receiving, even back then, prophetic revelation from God. So there is nothing in a woman's basic constitution that means she cannot provide guidance for God's people. Rather, it is forbidden because God because it interrupts God's plan in creation and redemption. And again, we went into that extensively. So these men are men. They're elders who are men. Second, these men who were to be honored were both elected and ordained. What does that mean? As elected men, I mean that their lives were known to the congregation. The congregation had some voice, some say in their appointment. Remember chapter 3 of this letter. Timothy was told what elders and deacons should be like. And and among all those qualifications, Paul underlines again and again that they're men of good reputation. They're men above reproach. To, To meet those qualifications, elders must be known, right? Known by their congregation, identified by their reputation. In fact, Paul uses the same language in these verses. He says in verse 17 that the elders who manage well should be honored. Just as in chapter 3, same word, he wrote, let them manage well their own households. So see what this means. It means that these men were known in the community and in some sense were elected or at least acknowledged. They might not have done election exactly how we do it with a little slip of paper where you check if you are voting for that elder. I'm sure they didn't do that. But in some sense, however they did it exactly, there was an election. They had the support of the congregation as a whole. 
If you go back into the book of Acts, you can see this pattern very clearly. In Acts chapter 6, the whole congregation is gathered, all the disciples, and the apostles say to them, look, we can't do all the ministry anymore. Pick out from among yourselves seven men of good reputation. And the congregation chooses seven men that are full of the Holy Spirit, that is, men that were already respected and known to the congregation. These men are then set before the apostles who approve them and lay hands on them, and that is, they ordain him, them, ordain them. Elders should have recognition from the people, that's election, and from the other elders, that's ordination. So when Paul here tells Timothy to honor the faithful elders, and when Hebrews 13 tells us to submit to our leaders, it's important to recognize that these aren't strangers. Submission and honor are never easy, but when you know the man, when you've seen his life, you've seen his suffering, and when the larger church has validated his office, it becomes reasonable to give honor to that man. Lastly, these men who've been elected or ordained, they have a job to do. We've seen this. They're to oversee the life of the congregation. Or as Paul says here in verse 17, they rule well, they manage well. That doesn't mean they do all the work. It means they're responsible for the doctrine, life, and direction of the church. To get at this, the New Testament uses three different names for this one office. Sometimes they're called bishops or literally overseers. Sometimes they're called pastors or shepherds. And other times they're simply called elders. In fact, on a couple of occasions in the New Testament, all three terms are used at once to capture the diversity of the calling of the elder. Paul, speaking to uh, these Ephesians elders, says in Acts 20, Pastor the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops, literally in English. The same message appears again and again throughout the New Testament. Now, maybe you're hearing this uh, for the first time. Maybe you've heard it a thousand times before. Either way, this, I think, is a really important teaching, and it deserves our attention. Over time, over time, sadly, many churches left this model. Many have left it today. More and more, churches were run by one man, one elder, often called a bishop, who did not even live in the town in which the church was located. The church father, Ambrose, worried about this same pattern. Listen to what he wrote hundreds and hundreds of years ago. He says, the old synagogue and afterward the church had elders without whose counsel nothing was done. It has fallen out of use. By what negligence, I do not know, unless perhaps through the sloth, or rather pride, of the learned, wishing to appear to be important by themselves alone. Ambrose is saying that he knew, and the early church fathers knew, that the pattern was to be a plurality of elders in a local congregation steering that church, but already in his day, things were moving away from that model to the idea of one learned man, one bishop, one pastor who sort of ruled over all things and had all power. And that same struggle is with us today, isn't it? We've all seen it. Some of us have suffered under it. A solitary elder or pastor who dominates the church answering to no one. 
Often he has ordained, trained, and installed himself, which conveniently guarantees him his independence. I know that many of you have experienced this, and let me give you a word of comfort this morning. The Lord knew that you would go through that, and he will comfort you in that trial and use it in your life. And frankly, I want this passage to be one of those comforts for you. I think it affirms your concern and shows you that God shares in your concerns. Why do I say that? Because notice what is happening here. It's easy to miss. God is saying here through Paul that even Timothy, even Timothy, Paul's spiritual son and chosen messenger, must work together with other elders. Timothy is to ensure that elders continue to be honored even in a place where elders have been the problem. In fact, Timothy is to ensure that some elders receive double honor. Sometimes it's not easy to follow the biblical model of church government. I get it. It can be hard to identify and train elders. It can be hard to get a group of men together uh, who can get along with one another and submit to each other. Uh, men like competition. They like to win. Men can be insensitive to a whole series of things. And elders can fall in numerous ways. But don't miss this. Paul, in his last letters, his pastoral epistles, he isn't running from his commitment to church government by a plurality of elders. Timothy here is commanded to share in that commitment and to ensure that the basic pattern of elder governance is not overthrown. Even Timothy is not above this pattern. He's not free to disregard faithful elders. So first, see how this passage assumes and reinforces the Bible's basic teaching about the church governed by elders. Second, notice that as Paul reinforces that basic pattern of elder rule, he also reinforces the biblical pattern of compensated gospel ministry. In our passage, Paul identifies elders who besides ruling well, are also called to labor, he says, in preaching and teaching. And Paul reinforces the biblical teaching that these men should be, ought to be compensated. The double honor mentioned here is a reference to both respect and compensation. Now let me be clear. All the faithful elders are worthy of honor. Hebrews 13 commands that we submit to faithful church leadership. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us to esteem very highly those who are over us in the Lord. Romans 12 encourages us in general to outdo one another in showing honor. So all the faithful elders are to be honored. But Paul knows that there's a second honor due to some of the elders, not because they're more holy or because they're more important, but notice in our text, because, in the words of Paul, they labor or they toil. In fact, the Greek word here, honor, can be used both for respect, but also for payment. Think about, for example, our word, honorarium. Honorarium. 
a payment made out of honor for someone's work, a payment given sometimes to a speaker. In the ancient world, an honorarium could refer to a payment that you made to a physician, probably because like a pastor, so doctors, it was sometimes hard to determine the exact worth of his work. It wasn't like buying farm equipment. And so they were given an honorarium. Paul is playing off that word and the ambiguity in the word here. And he's saying some, alder, some elders should receive both honor and honorarium for their labors. To drive this point home and remove all confusion that might be in our minds, Paul offers to us two really important scriptures. The first comes from Deuteronomy 25, and it was my mother's favorite wisdom saying. Verse 18 reads, do not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. In the ancient world, in the ancient world, the ox was your tractor. If you know farming, you know that tractors are used for every kind of dirty work. You can hook up all kinds of attachments to them and do just about everything with them. The ox performed that function in the ancient world. So when you would take your ox and you would lead it back and forth over the cut grain and he would stomp and separate the kernels of grain. The law in Deuteronomy 25 said you should not muzzle him, tie up his mouth when he's doing this. In other words, let him eat some of the grain he is working to harvest. In short, don't be cruel to your animals. God made them too. Remember, God says in the Ten Commandments that even the animals were supposed to rest on the Sabbath because God made them as well. The application of this text in Judaism was, don't treat your priest worse than your ox. In the Old Testament, you brought your offerings to a priest, a portion of your harvest, and he would burn a portion of that as an offering, and then he'd keep a lot of it, the rest of it, to provide for himself and his family. The law laid out exactly what he was allowed to keep of what you brought and what he had to burn and offer to God. In 1 Corinthians 9, our reading this morning, Paul made this connection clear. Just as the priest ate from the collection, so also some elders should be compensated. He writes in verse 14 of that chapter, quote, in this same way, that is, just as the priests ate of the collection, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel, end quote. The same way, in context, is the way the priests lived. This is also what our Old Testament reading was all about, wasn't it? That passage that Elder Boyajan read from Second Chronicles, it records one of the revivals that happened in Israel. It began when Hezekiah recovered the scriptures, in part because the priests had copied and preserved them. Then the scriptures were read and taught by the priests, and the people and the nation were restored. The harvest poured in, and the people of God, for the first time probably in years, really tithed. They really set apart a part of their income, and they gave it purposefully, not just accidentally, to the Lord. And Second Chronicles tells us that this resulted in the priests returning to full-time ministry. The priests who were back farming could stop farming because the people were tithing and could give themselves to the study of the law. 
And that brings us to the second quote Paul uses. After quoting the law and the ox and the priest, Paul quotes Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And notice he quotes Luke as scripture. Look again at verse 18. The scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out of the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. This, brothers and sisters, this is clear proof that even in the very first generation, the church knew that the gospels were scripture and that they were on par with the Old Testament. Paul knew the gospel of Luke as scripture already, and he was already quoting this text. But back to the quote itself. Jesus is the one who said, the laborer deserves his wages. The context for this gospel quote is fascinating. It's Luke chapter 10. Jesus is sending out 72 men to preach the gospel. He encourages these men not to take much with them. Not because Jesus is opposed to money. After all, Jesus and his disciples, remember, they had a fund of money. Judas was in charge of it. So Jesus is not opposed to paid ministry. Rather, he wants these 72 men to go out believing that their needs will be met. As if to say, don't take extra stuff, but rely on the gifts of people that they will give freely when you preach the gospel to them. He also tells them to stay in the first house that offers to receive and feed them. The temptation may have been, and I think it still is for some gospel ministers today, to keep moving around, seeking the best accommodation, the best pay. Maybe at first, when you entered a town, only a peasant would welcome you into his house. But then one day, a wealthy synagogue ruler would want the blessing of housing you. But the minister is to remain in the first home. Jesus says, quote, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide you. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. In this picture, then, of the ox and the laborer, I think Paul gives you, the congregation, a great picture of how you should think about pastors. Now, Paul is not being disrespectful. Remember, he's calling for double honor. So why does he choose these terms? The point, I think, is to emphasize hard work. The pastor here is not pictured arrayed in gold and sitting on a throne, but at the same time, good luck with the harvest if you're without your laborer and you don't have your tractor. So in the text, Paul makes it clear that the church is ruled by elders. He reaffirms that. But then he also makes it clear that among those elders are some who are called to toil and be repaid accordingly. In our denomination, we call these men ruling elders and teaching elders. Or if you like some church slang, R's and T's. In conversation, we usually just say around here, elder and pastor. And Reformed Christians have always looked to these verses, this passage and others, to affirm this basic structure of church government. This approach is not easy. As John Calvin, Ambrose, and many others, and many other church fathers point out, this system of government takes time, it takes money, it takes training, and it takes work. But Paul believed it was worth it, and so should we. The word deconstruction 
can mean many things to many different people. When I say that word, I wonder what comes to your mind. For some of us, we think about our cultural moment where the very basics of human life are being torn down, where people can no longer identify between men and women. Or if you're into literature or biblical studies as I am, you may think of the modern attempt of deconstruction to tear down all the great texts by subjecting them to new and hostile readings. Whatever comes to your mind, isn't it interesting that Paul does not do that here in our text. Paul and the other apostles had instituted the practice of male eldership in the church. Now it seems to me, it seems to me, this would be the perfect time to consider rethinking and dismantling that system. After all, in Ephesus, the eldership has failed. In its very first generation, Paul is not even dead yet, and some of the elders at Ephesus are teaching heresy, skimming the money, and pursuing women. Now, if Paul was a modern American, something like deconstruction would have been the immediate response. There would have been a flurry of articles titled, Rethinking How We Do Leadership in the Church. Then would have come the conferences, the endless conferences where the experts would weigh in and the buffet lines would fill up. Inevitably, someone would want to do an intersectional feminist deconstruction of church eldership. But today I want to give us a different vision of what is possible based on our text. Instead of deconstruction, I want to pray for and I want to propose to you reformation and revival. Our greatest need is to return and reform according to scripture. Our problems and those at Ephesus do not come from the fact that we have been incredibly faithful to the Bible and it just has let us down. It hasn't worked. Rather, I submit to you that our scandals, the scandals of the evangelical church in this area originate because we have drunk too deeply of the spirit of our age. As G.K. Chesterton once wrote, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. More than anything else then, today I am preaching not pastoral compensation packages, but humility and courage. We, like Timothy, need the humility and courage to follow the scriptural pattern of church government, even when things are hard. We must not turn the government of this church or any church over to vision teams or executives. The scriptures are clear. What we need now is the humility to obey and the courage to persist. Even if you're here today and you're totally disinterested in church government, the fact is this message applies to you. The day is coming when your Americanism, your love for just what works, and your Christian faith are going to collide. When obeying God doesn't seem to fit what works, and yet we are to persist, to reform and to be revived. Where then can we get that mix of humility and courage 
the humility to do God, God's work, God's way, the courage to persist in it. Well, we must get it from the Lord Jesus himself. We must get it from him. Even when Jesus was turning tables over in the temple, his central church, it wasn't to destroy or to deconstruct, but rather to restore and revive that great church to its scriptural design. And so you'll remember that even as he turned those tables over, Jesus quoted the scriptures as he purified the temple. Timothy and all who follow him are to do the same. We may not reinvent the order God has given. Rather, in humility, let us be conformed to it anew. And may God restore and order his church in this place and throughout the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is so clear. Your church is to be governed by a plurality of godly men taking the name elder. We pray, Father, that that would be the case here, continue to be the case here, and that more and more our brothers and sisters in every place would adopt this method of government, not because it's ours, but because it's yours. Give us grace then to submit to the godly elders and give us wisdom to remove those who are wicked and unbelieving and build your church, Father, so that Christ would be glorified in her. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. As our closing hymn, I invite you to stand. We'll sing together hymn number.